Before we open God's word together, there is in your bulletin an insert that says non-staff elder candidate. One of the important things that we do in the life of the church is the affirming of elders uh, to serve in leadership here at the church. Uh, Over the course of the past year, there have been four non-staff elders that have joined the staff elders. That's the only distinction we make is whether they're full-time on staff here or guys who are out making their living in the workplace and, and serve here as elders. Um, and so we will, as you'll see in the insert, um, are delighted to announce this morning that the elders are bringing forth Ryan Yoho as a candidate to join us on the elder team. The process that we go through is described in this insert. It's also in our elder handbook, which is online. Uh, it is a, a rigorous process. It involves uh, a lot of time and both um, prepared writing out answers to questions, but also interaction and involvement. And uh, as many of you know, Ryan has and his family have been here for more than a decade, and many of you know them from their service and their engagement here, and so we are delighted to be able to bring Ryan's name forward. We do so with the um, description, as you see here, the next 30 days of the process is as important as all of the weeks and a couple months actually previous that went into the process, and that is time when we ask for the covenant membership to give feedback on the nomination of elder candidates, that we want to hear from you on your wisdom, your input concerning that individual. And so we are inviting that. Um, You can come to speak to any of the elders, Stuart or myself or Bob or Brandon or Dave or Jeremy. Um, If you have something that you think is pertinent, we would love to hear from you. I encourage you to read the insert in the bulletin. Uh, It just sort of walks through what that, that process looks like and what it is we're desiring of you and uh, hope that you'll take the time to do that. More than anything, I would just ask you to pray. Um, It's always an important step in the life of a church to affirm a man as an elder, uh, particularly at a church that we believe the biblical pattern is for elder leadership, and so it's it's important and it deserves your prayer. Um, So please pray for the, the elders, for Ryan, and I thank you for that. Before we open the word, I should just point out it is Super Bowl Sunday. We're going to be looking in the book of Acts, and I just want to, I just want to say there's, there's such a community sense in Acts, and, and I just want to give you a living example of that. This afternoon at home group, I, I love my home group. I, our home group meets over at Matt and Tammy Benini's, and I, a years-long Rams fan, will break bread with these lifelong Patriots fans, and we will love each other. So, and we love each other deeply, regardless of the outcome. All right, that said, Acts chapter 1 is where we are this morning. A month ago, we were blessed to hear from some missionaries who partner with us here at Grace Bible Church. They go to Europe and Africa, and and they came and they spoke about missions, challenging us, encouraging us to think about missions. And one of those servants said during the afternoon session, talked about what he described as missional living, a term that's, that's really um, become more and more common amongst Christendom, mission, missional living. And he described it this way, the call to every follower of Jesus Christ to be intentional, to live on a mission, to glorify God and make disciples. That really is, quite simply, the outflow of what Jesus Christ commanded in the passage that Stuart read to you at the beginning of the service in Matthew chapter 28, when Jesus Christ said, as you are going, make disciples. The command there is not go, that's not the imperative. The the idea is you're already going. As you are going about life, as you are walking through life, 
Be about the business of leading people to Christ. Make disciples. Be used in that mission of leading people to Christ, of, of helping them to follow Christ, teaching them what that means. So while we here at Grace Bible Church pray for and financially support missionaries who go to people groups in other places with the gospel, you and I are also responsible to serve Jesus Christ here where we are, to glorify him, to live missionally, if you will. And as a local church, that means our call is to answer something that we've, we've sort of termed here at Grace Bible Church as local outreach. And that's what I want us to think about this morning. You can turn to Acts chapter 1 if you're not already there. Um, local outreach really is you and I doing what is commanded and displayed to us in the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is the book that comes after the Gospels. It is essentially the history of the early church. This is what happens in the days and months and years immediately following the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Acts 1-3 tells us that Jesus presents himself to his followers over a period of 40 days following his resurrection. Part of that is he's going to call them to be witnesses, and so he is, he is making it clear that they are to witness to the fact that the Savior is very much alive and risen, and he is also equipping them. We know from the latter parts of the Gospels that there's training and teaching that goes on during this period before he ascends. Acts chapter 1 then describes, as we'll read in a moment, Jesus ascending into heaven supernaturally before their eyes. And so what we get here is sort of the the final face-to-face -face conversation with Jesus and his disciples. So verse 6, if you'd look there, I'm going to read 6 through 11 just to get us started. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This morning we're going to start here and then drop in at a couple different points in Acts 1 through 4, and, and really just looking at missional living in the context of a community of believers, what it is that we do as individual believers and as a local church. There's a danger when we use that term local outreach as if it is some kind of specialized ministry that is to be done by a particular local outreach team, and we sort of segregate it that way. Local outreach is the intentional activity of missional living that we do as disciples of Jesus Christ in our everyday life as part of the context that we are in of a local church that proclaims the gospel and that loves and serves its community. So this, this local outreach is really something that all of us are engaged in. So we're going to look at some principles of local outreach, but I can tell you that at the end, the goal is to make this personal an individual in terms of application. In other words, we don't come to the end of this and in third person say, 
Grace Bible Church should do local outreach in this way or that way as much as we should come to the end of this saying, I, as a believer in Jesus Christ, who is joined together with these brothers and sisters at Grace Bible Church, should be living out the gospel of Jesus Christ and and impacting our communities and touching the lives around us. Let me also just take a second. I want to connect this back to the last couple of Sundays, because we're here at the beginning of the year just going through some, some topical messages, just some particular matters that we've had hoped to touch on, but there's also the danger that sometimes they look like all of these separate pieces, and we've talked about ethnic reconciliation and abortion, and I just would say this, the chief way that we as Christians approach those topics and a myriad of others, sexuality, marriage, poverty, ethics, injustice, you name the issue, still ultimately goes back here to what we're talking about this morning, and that is we start at the place of being in Christ, as believers in Christ, within the context of a community of believers who are seeking to serve their community by witnessing to Jesus Christ. My point is, I'm just following up on exactly where Stuart left off last Sunday, and that is we don't approach these issues and suddenly set the gospel aside and just work on the social and legislative side, we very much stay rooted in who we are in Christ and what we are as a community of believers who are loving and serving others and speaking the truth as witnesses of Jesus Christ. So three things we're going to cover this morning, the big picture, the details, and the outcomes. You have these on the notes in your bulletin there. We could put the, the, these under the, the headings of questions. What is the mission? How is the mission done? And what can we expect as we live out the mission? That last part will we'll hit pretty briefly at the end. But Jesus will explain the mission as he answers a question. And in fact, if you look at verse 6 again, this is what sparks the conversation. Verse 6, so when they had come together... They asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? The disciples think they have a sense for what's next. They think that the mission is what they have sort of in the back of their minds hoped the mission was all along, and that is the exaltation of the nation of Israel, right? This, this is what it's all about. Now is the time. And essentially what they're, what they're saying to Jesus now after he has been raised, it has been almost six weeks at that point. Now the question comes, so now, now we get to the good stuff. Now you make our nation to the nation that, that, that it should be. You exalt us over the Romans. Now we win, right? That's sort of the, the way that they're posing this question because they're, they're limited in their scope. They're thinking that this is what it's all about. Jesus says in verse 7, It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is Jesus very graciously saying, wrong. That That is not what this is about at this point. He's it's essentially letting them know that They've got a very small view of things. You're, he says, you're, you're essentially, you're, you're focused in on a nation right now and, and, and exalting one nation. You are part of the kingdom of God. You have a much greater mission at this point. And so he's going to lift them up above this and set them straight on what this mission is. And the first crucial piece he tells them about this mission is you're going to need power to do this. This mission will require power. You will not be able to do this on your own. 
you will be engaged in this mission. This is not simply I flip a switch and all of this happens, but you will need power to do this. There's no more universal ambition than the quest for power. On a travel section of CNN's website a few months ago, it said this, Washington, D.C. might not have the same cultural cachet as New York or Los Angeles, but the capital of the United States has something unsurpassed by any other city in the world, power. Power pulses through the veins of Washington, D.C. and threads through its DNA. People spend their lives and their careers in the pursuit of power, trying to gain it, trying to hold it, trying to use it for whatever the agenda might be. And we live in a region that is captivated by the pursuit of power. We live in a region that people move to for the sake of pursuing power in some way. In the New Testament, the word for power shows up a little more than 100 times. Most by far are references to God's power, the supernatural, otherworldly power of the creator of the universe. It is greater by far than all of man's earthly power. And that is what Jesus is talking about when he says, you will receive power. You won't earn it. You won't acquire it by virtue of earnestness, but rather, I will give this to you. This power for this mission will be given to you, and it's God's power. Some of the places in Scripture where it speaks of this power, Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 1, the gospel is the very power of God to save sinners. Romans 15, God's Spirit uses his power to cause us to abound in hope. We will be raised from death to life as a result of the power of God. 1 Corinthians 2 says our faith must rest in the power of God. And then the statement by Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 where he prays that they would begin to grasp the greatness of the power of God teaches us that as believers in Jesus Christ, we've only just begun to understand the power of God that has been poured into us and we need to pray and ask God to help us to grasp that. God's power is given through God's Spirit to us, the followers of Jesus Christ, to do what he's going to call us to do in this mission. We're not trying to do this on our own. As a matter of fact, it's clear we can't, that, that we are completely fruitless if we try to do this in our own power. We can't save people. God saves people. But God, in his kindness pours his power into his people, and then uses us as instruments in his saving of people. So he, he lets us participate in it in that way, that we are able to experience God's power in his work in the lives of people. So we need power for this mission. The second part is the actual mission itself. He says, you will receive power when the Spirit has come upon you. For what? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Jesus said, I'm giving you Supernatural power for the specific mission of being a witness, of being my witnesses. When we think of a witness, we think of somebody who is needing to give compelling testimony, somebody who is going to speak to a jury or seek to give evidence of what they've experienced or seen or believed to be true. Jesus didn't say to them, you're going to receive power so that you will be theologians or scholars or seminar instructors, he said, I'm giving you this power so that you will be my witnesses, so that you will very simply tell people about who I am and what I've done 
That's the nature of being a witness. Now, if your response is, see, I, I struggle to be a witness because I just, I don't know, I don't think I know enough, I, I don't think I can handle people's objections when I do speak the truth, then I would refer you back to point one, which is the power of God poured out to be witnesses, that he is the one who is empowering us to do this. We tend to, when we think of eyewitness testimony, we think of the burden of proof that is on that person who is giving testimony, that, that they must speak and they must be subject to hard questions. What did you really see? Are you, are you sure about what you saw? And are you sure about what you know? And, and the burden is on the witness to persuade the listeners that this is, this is true. My, my witness is credible. You need to believe this. Listen, the, the, the power to persuade people to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is God's power. He has called us to be faithful witnesses and to know that the, the power that gives life to the spiritually dead, the power that gives sight to the spiritually blind, the power that lifts the lost out of darkness and brings them into light and leads them to faith in Jesus Christ is God's power. And he says to us, just be witnesses. Just tell people the truth of who I am and what I've done and how I've changed your life. Just be a witness to that and allow his power to ensure whatever outcomes God has intended. So we are called to be witnesses. Very simply, that's proclaiming who Jesus is and what he's done. Just by way of review, just to, to remind ourselves again of the simplicity of all this, I, I, I think we could bring this down to roughly Three points. The first one is God created man, right? That God made us. We are sinners. That we've rebelled against our Lord, our creator, and we want to do our own thing, and we deserve punishment for our sin. There's the first one. Second one, God graciously provides a way of salvation. That even though we are rebels who have turned against him, God sends his son, Jesus Christ, who comes and lives a perfect life, and then dies on the cross as a substitute to take our punishment, to experience God's wrath in our place, rises again to defeat sin and death. Third, then, is you and I are saved from God's judgment and his wrath and his punishment by trusting fully in Jesus Christ, by running from our sinful rebellion and turning to Jesus and believing in him. You've heard that before. I say it again because I want to just emphasize that is the simplicity of what he's called us to, to be witnesses, to speak of how he made us, who we are, how he sent his son, what his son did, and what we must do in order to be saved, turn from our sin and trust in him. That's the mission, is to be witnesses to the person and work of Jesus Christ, and God empowers us through his spirit to do that. One more thing, and this isn't one of the specific points necessarily in the outline, but it's verse 8 gives us a little bit of geography. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Jesus is describing this witness ministry in terms of concentric circles. There is first this place where you are right now, the city. You see the little red circle there, the city of Jerusalem. 
Start there, minister there, go from there to the region. We might think of it as the state. Go further out now into Judea, into the countryside, throughout Judea. Then to Samaria, to people who aren't necessarily like you and and don't really want to listen to you, but you go to them as well. Then it, it spreads out, and finally, he says, to the end of the earth. He's setting up for us a sort of picture, a sort of pattern in terms of our ministry that we do ministry here and we work from here and by Christ's design, we begin to move out then from here. But it is by Christ's design that Grace Bible Church is in Lorton, Virginia. This is our town. This is our Jerusalem. This is where God has placed us to be witnesses to the people who live here and to speak his truth to them. The mission starts here. One of my, my fondest memories as far as sort of settling into life at Grace Bible Church well before I was an elder was going on a missions trip to Kentucky, going with a group of people and, and having just a wonderful week of ministry in Kentucky. A couple of years later then, a bunch of us went to West Virginia, and those were sweet times. I couldn't help, though, as we were doing the six plus hour drive over the river and through the woods to get to these places to think, there's got to be 100 Bible-believing churches, maybe not, maybe 50, somewhere along these routes, and, and all of them have different Jerusalems in which to serve. And so while God has given us this privilege to go and show the love of Christ to people and to serve them and, and, and to give them Jesus Christ in their desperate need, we also need to have that heart here in Lord. This is where God has set us. That's really been the conviction of the elders as we've talked about this, that we are going to continue to love and serve our missionary partners. We are going to continue to look for opportunities to serve wherever God would allow us, but we also believe that there's a priority that he has given us here to minister here in Lorton and the surrounding area. So let's get to the how question. How do we do this? How do we execute this? And I'm, I'm going to put it in terms of three attitudes. Turn to the end of Acts chapter 2. Last part of 2, Peter has just given a sermon in Jerusalem. The church has been born, if you will, in Acts chapter 2 as a result of God working through his sermon. Acts 2.41, at the end of this preaching out in the streets of Jerusalem, it says, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were at it that day about 3,000 souls. Acts 2.42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as proceeds as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Under the details of this mission, I want to give you three attitudes that I think we see here in the early church that will help us do this well. The first one is devotion. Call it being intentional. Call it commitment. Call it dedication, sacrifice. But the, the first glimpse we get, the church is now being born. People are coming to faith in Jesus Christ, and we see this 3,000 souls are added, and immediately we see that their, their everyday 
now work going forward. They, amidst the things that they are doing, the eating, the sleeping, the working, the caring for children, the loving the spouse, all the things that they are called to do, that running through all of that in the course of all these things is this devotion to the cross of Jesus Christ, this devotion to the mission of the gospel. They are devoted to this, and it is filling them. So when you have the the church, 3,000 added in verse 41, then verse 42 says, and they devoted themselves. The New American Standard translates this more accurately. It says, and they were continually devoting themselves. It's a present tense. So it's not just a historical fact that they got saved and devoted themselves. They were continually devoting themselves. This This became part of who they were. This was a state of being, if you will. And so verses 46 and 47 use the phrases day by day, attending the temple together, and day by day, God adding people. Daily, they are fellowshipping, they are worshiping, they are serving, they are being generous, they are witnessing in a way that that God would use to bring people to the family of God. All of this is the normal course of life because the Spirit is empowering them to desire and to do these things. The idea that that we sort of segregate our life and God gets this slice. You know, God gets mostly Sunday morning, maybe a couple little other parts here and there, and the rest is sort of mine and mine to use, is contrary to Scripture. It's contrary to the experience of the early church. The early church is saying that in the midst of all that they are doing, they are coming together as a family, going out and serving the people around them and caring for the people and proclaiming Christ. It's tempting at this point to say, well, that was the first century. Life was simpler. They didn't have to commute. They didn't have pressures and deadlines like we do. And, and so, you know, that's, that's just a different culture. Well, I'm not so sure. I mean, actually, they had to, to grow or hunt any of the food they ate. They didn't go down a food line and, and just buy it. They grew it, or they killed it, and they butchered it, and they didn't have machinery, and they didn't have good medical care, and life was hard. Daily life, just living life, day to day, was hard. And yet, in the midst of this, it says, daily, they are rejoicing, worshiping, seeking opportunities. I I grant you that they, they didn't have the world of enticing distractions that we have right at our fingertips, and that's to our sadness. But let's not fool ourselves into thinking that this kind of missional living was possible in the first century, but not today. Because it is. This is what we're, we're shown as being an attitude of devotion that arises out of thanksgiving to the God who saved me. And so in my parenting, in my workplace, in my neighborhood, I'm called to this kind of living. First attitude is devotion. Second one is generosity. He alludes to it here in verses 44 and 45, this this selling of possessions and distributing to others. Also down in verse 46, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. Acts 4 will reiterate this again, their willingness to share their stuff. We tend to wonder about this, this selling of stuff in order to, to distribute to others. Remember back in this day, there wasn't there probably wasn't a paycheck that was direct deposited into an account. It was bartering and trading of things back and forth. And so your stuff was what you had. All of your possessions were in all of these different things. And so you sold stuff when you needed to be able to help somebody else or you gave stuff away. 
And so for us, a lot of that happens in our commerce with money, but it's calling us to an attitude of generosity, of saying, this is what God has provided me for the sake of now spreading his gospel and, and loving others and sharing with others. Attitudes produce actions. What's in our heart ultimately reveals itself in actions. So you can't be devoted simply to missional thinking. You know, I'll, I'll think about missional living. I'll ponder it. I'll, I'll allow some time to, to meditate on it. No, we're called to do missional living, active sacrifice, worship, fellowship, serving. In the same way, compassion and generosity, we're not called to merely think about those things and to applaud them as good virtues. We are given this as a model in which to follow, to be generous, to love others by sharing and giving sacrificially. The early church learned this quickly when people became outcasts for their faith in Christ. They learned to be sacrificial, to support the spread of the gospel, and to care for the needs of others. The Lord has called us, Grace Bible Church, to serve the mission of his kingdom here in Lorton and the surrounding area, and part of that is sacrificial giving of our time and treasure to that work, serving here giving here, helping here, and ministering so that the work is done in this community. If this is the body of believers where God has placed you, then this is, this is family. That's the, the picture throughout the New Testament is being brought together in a family relationship. So those who are in the family and who are struggling with need are called to be humble and transparent and to share that need. And those who have are called to be generous and compassionate with those who are in need and to minister to them as brothers and sisters in Christ. All of our material possessions are fleeting. We, going back to 2017, we looked at the book of Ecclesiastes and the word for vanity, hebel, I am so grateful when I still hear people from time to time use that word hebel, that Hebrew word that means fleeting, because that, that's what our stuff is. It's temporary. This building, our homes, all our stuff is fleeting. God has given it to us as a stewardship to be used for his sake and for his kingdom. It, it drives against that instinct to be selfish. And yet as believers, we follow a savior who emptied himself and took the form of a servant, giving himself even to death on a cross to take the place of us and save us from our own depravity. And therefore, we are called to be like him, do nothing out of selfish ambition. But rather be humble, generous, and sacrificial. So the work of ministry goes on. I, I would just say with all of these, there is, there's a, a description here of intentionality. It doesn't just happen. It comes because... We do think about it, but then we act on it. We think about being devoted, and then we act on that devotion. We think about being generous, and then we act on that generosity and that compassion toward others. Devotion, generosity, and the third one is boldness. Boldness. It doesn't take long at all for the early church to begin to face hostility. It's got to have been at least something of a blow to come from this moment of Peter preaching in Jerusalem 3,000 new believers, the church beginning to grow, the community coming together, worshiping and fellowshipping, and then realizing that, again, the same hostility that sent Jesus Christ to the cross is now coming again. And they are now turning it toward these believers. And so as Peter and John begin to speak 
publicly, the same religious leaders that saw to it that Jesus Christ was crucified are now getting angry. What's interesting, though, is to watch how they respond, how Peter and John respond. Look at chapter 4, verse 13. Peter and John have been proclaiming God's truth, already starting to face some opposition, and it says, talking about the people in Jerusalem, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. The, the Greek word for boldness is parousia. It's, it's made from two words. Pas means all, all of something. And resis, which is, we get, it, it's sort of behind, if you follow the etymology, our word rhetoric, speaking, finds its way all the way back to that. So the word boldness literally means all speaking. What, what it pictures there is they said everything that needed to be said. Boldness in this situation meant they didn't hold back. They said it all. They, they gave the gospel and they spoke Christ, and they didn't give just sort of a partial message. They didn't compromise it. They didn't water it down. They didn't think, ah, they're not going to like the whole sin part of it, so we'll leave that part out and just get to the God loves you part and, and forget the, the need of a Savior. No, they spoke it all. They spoke with boldness. Now, before we're tempted here again to look and go, well, that's Peter and John. Peter and John were rough fishermen, so they were a little bolder. You know, that, I'm not that way. I'm, I'm really meek, and I'm quiet, and kind of shy, and, and I can't see me doing that. Luke is kind enough to say to us here that the crowd is looking at Peter and John, and they are saying to themselves, wait a minute, these are uneducated common men. Makes it clear that even as they are speaking, the crowd is aware that these are not professional orators. These are not talented public speakers. These are just common fishermen. And, and, and what they're saying is empowered by the Spirit of God. So much so that now they're starting to go, well, there's something about them being with Jesus. Because these are just ordinary guys. The Jewish leaders threatened Peter and John, called them in, read them the, you know, the whole story at this point. You need to stop. We're telling you to stop doing this. And they released Peter and John. Here's the, here's the best part. Peter and John leave, and they go back to the rest of the believers. Here's a wonderful display of a couple of individual believers who are out there. They're speaking the truth, and then they come, and they gather back with the brothers and sisters in Christ after there has been this threat. And together, the body prays. This is what we do on second Sunday nights. This is why we think that's important, that the body come together, and we pray together, because this is exactly, as soon as opposition comes... They go back and they go, okay, we got to work out a new strategy. No, they go back and they say, we got to pray because we don't know what to do in light of this. And so they pray and they, they talk to God openly about the threat that they face. Later on in chapter 4, they're, they're, they're quoting the Old Testament, talking about the Gentiles raging and the kings setting themselves against them and, and rulers, and they face all this opposition. But look what they pray for in verse 29, Acts 4, verse 29. And now, Lord... Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They, 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 as soon as they faced opposition, they, 
they, they said, let's get together and pray because we need God's power to be at work in this. What's startling, I think, about this is not to just see what they did, but to remember Peter and John not all that long before. You could back up a few months, and there were Peter and James and John. And, and remember, in Luke chapter 9, there's a Samaritan village that doesn't want Jesus to come into the village and says, nope, you can't come through here. And Peter and James and John have this, well, excuse me, James and John, I should say, the sons of thunder, have this marvelous idea about how to handle it, Right? Should we call down fire from heaven on this village? We should just wipe them out, right, Jesus? And he rebukes them. And then Jesus is about to be arrested, and what does Peter do? He pulls out a knife and he slashes the, the, one of the, the servants of the high priest. Again, Jesus rebukes him. And then Jesus is arrested and he's on trial. People start looking at Peter going, hey, you were with Jesus, right? And what does Peter do? He becomes terrified. And he lies, and he says, no, 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 not me, and, and, and he's out of there. All, all of those were the reactions. One of those, in fact, was just a couple of months earlier. And now look at him here in Acts chapter 4. They've just been threatened by the same religious leaders who put Jesus to death, who've been told, you stop preaching or else. And, and, and Peter and John go back, and they don't, they don't call down fire they don't ask God to wipe out the city. They don't run in fear. They say, you know what? We got to pray that God will give us the courage to stand here and keep speaking all. Give us boldness. Pray. And they prayed, and God gave them boldness so that they would not compromise, so that they would not run in fear. The last couple of weeks, we've talked about some stuff in, in these sermons, some tough stuff, serious stuff, hard stuff taking of innocent lives, injustice, harming people because of their skin color. And we see those things, and it, it stirs up in us anger. We tend, to, we tend to react sometimes in our guts and sometimes on social media not a whole lot different than James and John with that desire to, to see the evil pummeled in some way. When the governor of our commonwealth advocates for delivering a child and then keeping it comfortable while the doctors and parents decide whether or not to let it live, we, we should have righteous anger. But it must not stop there. First, we need to remember judgment belongs to God. I would submit to you we've, we've seen a little bit of God's justice at work this week, perhaps. But we also, we need boldness to continue to speak the truth. Because what people need is not a new law, not a new social standing. They need Christ. Amen. They need the gospel, and their only hope is for forgiveness and eternal life through Jesus Christ. And so, just like Peter and John, you could get angry at that point and disgusted and want God to judge these Jewish leaders and change the, the government right then at that moment in, in Jerusalem and wipe them all out. Instead, they said, Jesus, just, just give us boldness. Let us be faithful to the task you've called us to, to speak the truth and love to these people. I would submit to you, just as sort of an aside, and yet I think it's related to this more than ever, you and I are called to pray for Governor Northam. As, as angry as we may be at things said and things done, we ultimately believe 
that he needs not a political salvation at this point, that ultimately he needs to find, if necessary, and cling to Jesus Christ. But that's, that's where it is. And, and that's what we are called to as a community, to love, to serve, to witness to Christ. Another part of this, too, by the way, in the community, we're building relationships. So we're caring for people, feeding, clothing, helping those who are without, going to the senior center, showing love, compassion to folks at the crossings this afternoon, as a group of you will be doing. But we also know that just, just hugs and random acts of kindness only serve to make Lorton a slightly better place to enter eternity from without Christ. We also need to speak the gospel. The kindness, the, the good things that we do, we should show compassion and we should be generous. But we must show Christ and witness to him. We must pray for boldness as individual believers and as a church that we would stand uncompromising as witnesses to our Savior. doesn't mean that every conversation must be an entire three-point gospel presentation. You can't leave the elevator until I've gotten through point three. But it does mean that we don't get driven away by fear when the opportunity for the conversation is there. We need boldness in those moments. And God calls us to pray for that. When we do that, God works. There's, there's three outcomes I think are here. I'm just going to touch on them real quick. Acts 4, we've already seen the, the response of the Jewish leaders. Acts 4, 1 and 2 says they were greatly annoyed by the preaching of Peter and John, the, the Jewish leaders. The, they, the Greek word for annoyed has the idea of pained. It, it, just, it just dug down inside when they heard this preaching of Jesus. They were just aggravated. It, it, they didn't want to hear it, and they were greatly annoyed. Acts 3, verses 10 and 11 speak of some of the bystanders in Jerusalem being astonished. They heard this witness about Jesus, like we saw earlier when Peter and John were preaching, and they are they're amazed. I don't know where are these guys, how they got this, and, and, and they're astonished at the preaching. Some were annoyed, some were astonished, but three times in these early chapters of Acts, it says God added many to the body. Annoyed, astonished, added. There's the marvelous work of God saying, just be faithful. Just be witnesses of Jesus Christ and know that I will add to your body. I will save people. I will bring souls into the kingdom. Acts 2.41, there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Acts 2.47, the Lord added to their number day by day those being saved. Acts 4.4, right after the annoyance of the leaders, says, but many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Think about this. This is a newborn church. They don't have the New Testament at that point. They have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Maybe up to like 500 of them, 1 Corinthians says, had seen Jesus alive. The rest of this 5,000 is hearing the testimony. God is saving them. They are new to faith in Christ, and God is adding to their number as they are being faithful, as they are praying and saying, God, help us to be devoted, to serve one another. To, to be engaged with his body. Help us to be generous, to be compassionate, sacrificial, and not cling to stuff, but to be generous with others. And God, make us bold so that people who've never seen you or heard you before would come to believe in you through our witness. Isn't that what we want as Grace Bible Church? 
we can, we can talk about local outreach and dream about local outreach and hope that there's people who do local outreach, but the fact of the matter is this is not some specialized ministry that a few people undertake. This is missional living. This is what we are called to. As individual believers who also come together as a body of believers, we are called to live as this community. This is why God has put us in Lorton with neighbors in Lake Ridge and Dumfries and Springfield and Woodbridge and Arlington. This is why he has put us here to be a people who answer the Savior's call to be witnesses of Jesus Christ, to proclaim him, to in devotion serve others and to be generous. He doesn't say it'll be easy. That's why it starts with, and you will receive what you need, power, because you can't do this on your own. And, and right from the beginning, the, the, we know long being with people sacrificially, loving, serving people over the long haul can be draining. It, it just can be draining of time and treasure. That's why he has empowered us and provided for us the resources to do ministry and, and called us to be bold in serving him. And God, by his grace, says, you do that. Be faithful, and I will add. I will add to your numbers. May God help us to pursue this mission by his power with our being. Let's pray together. Father, I, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the conviction of it. Pray that what you have graciously done in my heart this week, you would do in the hearts of your people to, to allow for some introspection. Lord, I know my own selfish, fearful instincts, my own temptation to rationalize away Sometimes what I see here in these descriptions in the book of Acts. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the power of your spirit, for the ongoing convicting work of the spirit to put before us the, the truth of what the local church is to look like, how it is to impact its community. God, we pray for Lorton. We pray that you would allow Grace Bible Church to play a pivotal role in this community, that you would help us to grow in our love for our neighbors, for the people we pass at the store, the people we interact with at our kids' sports events, wherever it might be. Lord, thank you for where you've placed us and the power that you've given us to serve you and to glorify you. Father, we as a body of believers pray this morning for our governor. And Lord, we pray that you would be at work in his heart. We are not in a position one way or another to, to stand as ultimate judge over a man's heart, but you are. And Lord, at this point in life when he might think that his greatest trial to overcome is a political one, we pray, Lord, that your spirit would cause him to see that it's a spiritual one. Ultimately, Lord, if he is not a believer, we ask that you would save him, that you would open his eyes to your truth, that you would gloriously redeem him and show him the beauty of Jesus Christ. 
Father, make us to be people with compassion on our community, with the knowledge that there are many who are lost and apart from Christ and that you have set in our lives. Help us to be faithful, to speak of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, grow us as a church, not only in bringing to us wonderful brothers and sisters in Christ who come to worship and to minister together, but we pray that you would grow this body of believers by saving souls, that there would be a a great work that is only in its early stages here of seeing the gospel go out through these people from this place to impact our communities and to see added to your kingdom numbers who would find the joy of hope and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Grant us boldness this week. We ask it in Jesus' name.